7, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. Good luck, studio. Wow. Oh, it's that time again. Uh, Paul Chandler's going to start this whole thing he does. It's called the Shylock Podcast. It's probably going to start any minute now. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, sit back and relax. All I wanted was a pie. And then I hatched out of an egg. Okay, bring the mic over. He's ready to record. It's the quiet ones you've got to watch, you know. Is it metaphorical? Is it, is it deep? Is it deep? <laughs> Boy, he's got all that shyness right. Gee. me, Governor. It's the Shy Life Podcast. Excellent. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Shy Life Podcast with me, Paul the Shy Yeti. How you doing? I'm all right. So, uh, what's this episode going to be about? Well, we've got two guests this time. Actually, this is the fourth year that we've done this. Um, we've got uh, Toppy Smelly and DJ Starsage um, from Matinee Minutia here. How you doing, guys? Well, hello there, Paul, and thank you for having us along. I mean, it's been so long since I've stamped my passport. This is the next best thing, I will have you know. There you yeah. go. Hi, everybody. Yeah. We're going to run the theme music, but um, this episode we're going to be talking about the fourth season of Matinee Minutia that's just concluded. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the various films that they discussed um, as a sort of preview to, uh, if you haven't listened, it'll it'll uh, remind you of, of, of all the films that you can go back and the episodes that you can listen to. So let's run that theme music and then when we come back, we'll, we'll get chatting. Run that theme music. Darling, it's the Shy Life podcast. <laughs> <laughs> find a cast of characters like this everywhere. Hello, boys. Uh, I'll go anywhere for the Delicious. Hello, campers. How are you? You quite like a big bang, don't you? Oh, Go Shy Yeti. Oh, I hope he hasn't found out my secret. I think he has. You can talk that was bad. Just listen to this. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to begin. It's the Shy Life Podcast. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm strangely drawn to Yeti Angry John's ankles as well. <laughs> but has the Shy Life podcast slowed down? I don't think so. It's all gooey and meaty and yum, 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 yum. Has anyone seen my hot sausage? <laughs> hello, hello. So, hi guys, we're, we're back. So, season four of Matinee Minutia. It, it's gone so quickly. I mean, gosh, it doesn't seem that long ago since we were talking about the end of season three. But, uh, how's it been? Well, it has certainly been a trip down memory lane because, uh, you know, for those who may not have yet tuned in, which if you haven't, what have you been waiting for? Um, this is kind of my, uh, my tribute, my... Uh, sharing of fond memories i've had with my sweet papa because these are a lot of movies at least from my part of the uh, the trip down that dark alley that we sometimes talk about uh of the the uh, television shows and films that i caught with my dad and of course toppy's got his own version of that these uh are pics of his as well because we we share this show as well as that balcony in it mm-hmm 
Yeah, we do this out of uh, a theater, really old movie theater in Spud Flats, New York, uh, which is just a short distance from our homes. And uh, it's a draft deal place, and we have a concession stand gal, Gertie, who uh, introduces the show every every time. So it's nice. <laughs> she's worn many hats, and these days she's getting around on a um, a refurbished ice cream truck, which, let's face it, in our small town is as close to a public transportation as we're going to get. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about some of the films that uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll run through. Um, all of them, you can always tell me which are your favorites and uh, um, see if we can ask. Listeners, I'm going to see if I can get some uh, some, some hot tips for the for season five as well. But uh, don't don't let them know. We'll uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll work we'll work them down. Um, so, am I right in saying the first film you covered and um, was Mash from 1972? It was Toppy. This was uh, your introduction to the season, and uh, it was a film that they they later made a TV series on about it. Yeah, and this was um, uh, a very popular movie of its day, and uh, Robert Altman directed, and it, it shows his unique style, uh, and he he was a director that allowed his uh, people, his actors, to improvise. So um, it's very different from I, I I can't remember if it's possibly the film that he did before. This, this, or, or after it, there's a film we did called Images, which is a film that I've been finding myself rewatching. Uh, but you, you couldn't, you couldn't think of a different film between the two. You know, that Images is, is a sort of supernatural type film, and Mash is really, you know, much more real life. It just shows how diverse a director he was. Oh yeah, yeah. What did you think of of that? movie dj well i found it uh very informative because of course um there's a there's a a, a few years between choppy and i <laughs> i like to think of him as my my um, my nerd brother my big brother that i never had and um i grew up watching at least reruns of the television series so i was i was quite intrigued to catch the film that they were inspired to make the TV series from. But, uh, of course, it features a lot of talent that I had seen in other things later on, of course, uh, like Donald Sutherland, who, of course, always played the um, very intellectual type and the the character that you weren't quite sure, um, you know, what their story was. Always intriguing characters is Donald Sutherland's types. And then, of course, Sally Kellerman, who played Hot Lips in the movie. Um, you know, I didn't get to see until a handful of years later where she was a very well-informed uh, English professor in a Rodney Dangerfield movie, of all things. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she she um, read lines like somebody would do an audio book from uh, you know a romance novel, so that that's always my mindset of Sally Kellerman. Is that uh, actually? I think she also did the uh, commercials for salad dressing, but I'm I'm getting ahead <laughs> of myself. <laughs> but Mash is it was just such a um, kind of a period piece because uh, you know it uh, it talked about a period in time 
where America went to war and it was much more recent than, you know, our, our fathers and grandfathers wars. So we got opinions on political, um, you know, uh, avenues, I guess you'd say. And uh, it, it was a lot more recent, so it might have been more controversial. You know, should we be really over there? Are we fighting someone else's war kind of thing? And, you know, it's, um, it was it was very informative. And, and of course, uh, you know, the the whole story behind the theme song is that um, they had words to it. Actually, I don't remember, Toppy, did the, the version that was in the film have the lyrics to it? Uh, good question. I I don't know. I don't remember if they used it. Possibly, maybe it was the closing music. They they may have used the lyrics. Can't remember. Okay, but yeah, um, I I was just um, the t- the film, of course, is got a much more dark tone than the TV series because you can't keep people's attention for seven whatever amount of seasons it is without having some lighthearted moments but uh, i thoroughly enjoyed it mm-hmm. and what why did you pick this one as this for the start toppy was it just one that, that uh, you thought was a, a a good a good sort of jumping off point for the season yeah i i i wanted i, I thought of the tv show and uh i i wanted to go to the source material um yeah. from the movie and that that was really uh, I I wanted to share that with the audience the um, just the original movie that inspired the series. Tubby, um, that show she had in her backpack there, uh, Mash, that was something that ran for quite a while. There, it had a little over ten seasons. Sure did. Uh, hard to believe um i would have said it started in 71 but i guess research has shown it started in 72 i I can't believe it was that long ago and um i didn't know a thing about it for 1972 1973 i think midway through the season i finally tuned in it was an episode called four o'clock charlie that's the first episode i remember and then i remembered i tuned in every week after that for years you know, I uh, I didn't catch it in its initial run, but it also aired on Monday nights. So, you know, if you were anybody who was still in school, you might have had to get permission to stay up. But uh, I got to see it in the reruns. And, uh, well, let's just say that uh, one of my sisters was okay with watching the scenes in the surgery room. But... Uh, when it came to watching a PBS special on the miracle of birth, she couldn't sit through it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. um, now, the next film you covered was The Princess Bride, which I believe was one of your most um, popular episodes of the season. I don't think I've ever seen The Princess Bride. Um, oh, lordy. <laughs> well... You need you need to make a day with that movie. <laughs> and whose pick? Who is whose pick was that one? Well, that was Mister Smelly's also. Yeah. So he had a a good running start there for the season. Yeah. Uh, who can resist the Princess Bride? Utterly charming. 
just a, 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 a classic um, fantasy um, Rob Reiner movie with uh, a great cast, and and that that was the episode we that I learned we all learned how to pronounce uh, the uh, the actor the the um, the prince who would become the prince uh, Elways. Um, that's where we learned how to pronounce his last name. Oh yes, the, the handsome, fair-haired gentleman who would later on be the star of Robin Hood, Prince of Tights, or Prince of Tights. <laughs> I do know him as an actor. I is Robin Hood, um, uh, Men in Tights. Is that regarded as a good movie now, or? Or was it not? Or was it a, a cult favorite? Or because that's one of the few films I've ever been to, where we almost walked out of the cinema. We thought it was so bad. <laughs> but I don't. I don't know. But that was at the time. I don't know if if I watched it now, it would be. Um, well, I mean, I can absolutely say it doesn't have the reputation and staying power of Princess Bride. Uh, I, I I don't. I I never saw Men in Tights. I thought that that was a Mel Brooks film. Yes, yeah, but not necessarily in his classic period. So I don't, although I don't really know where his classic period begins. There, most directors have a classic period, don't they? And then they have ones that they do, which, uh, so I mean, Woody Allen certainly has has um, films that are uh, that are considered his classics. And, mm-hmm. and when he ever, when it, if he ever makes a film that is good, it's almost like it annoys people because it's like. Oh damn! He's made a really good, he's made a really good film, but in a in a patch of really bad ones. So how what how do we class this one? I I think this well, I gather this is one of Mel Brooks's lesser movies, uh, and I would actually recommend people go find the TV series Mel Brooks did called When Things Were Rotten, um, which I think was far better than than the movie men in tights but um but yeah back to princess pride sorry we went off the point there but uh, i will add that um if for no other reason the princess bride is an important film for folks to catch because i do believe it's only the second film that uh all in the family star rob reiner and of course uh, son of um oh i'm carl reiner uh it's only his second film he directed princess bride was made after um stand by me um and then, following that one, we have uh, Repo, the Genetic Opera from 2008. <laughs> you can tell by my my uh, fit of laughter there that that one's my fault. Um, <laughs> I I don't often uh, dabble in the realm of horror, and if I do, it's going to be sort of um, oh uh, cultish. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word that I would use for it, but uh, you know, it's it's in the the vein of things like Rocky Horror. So Repo, the genetic opera, is as close to horror as I get because, um, in true B movie fashion, you get to see star Paris Hilton get killed on screen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and also. Uh, Paul Sorvino has, I mean, one of one of his more interesting roles is actually in this movie, so uh, that that was a surprise. But it has a real underground feel, and um, you have kind of reminiscent of Rocky Horror 
And actually, the funniest thing I remember uh, that happened to me when we were doing the show is that I was telling a, a friend in, in person about Matinee Minutia. I was telling him about the podcast. And I said, yeah, and we just did uh, this weird musical um, <laughs> movie. And and I started describing it. And he said, you got to be kidding me. You guys did that movie? That's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't believe it. Uh, he was like totally shocked that uh, that we had found such an obscure movie. Yes, and um, we had a returning guest on that hour, uh, our fabulous friend, Amanda Martini, who's a mid-Atlantic um, cosplayer and uh, drag performer. And uh, as she put it, uh, this was torture porn. <laughs> and I'll let Toppy explain what that means. Oh, well, um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> no, it, and, it, you know, it's uh, the sensibilities are... are uh, uh, Strange, strange. Let's put it that way. Um, there's there's a lot to uh, a, a lot that will uh, maybe not appeal to a lot of people. I see Anthony Head was in it from Buffy. Oh yeah. well, yes, and uh, uh, your fake prime minister for a time there. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I guess having done Buffy, it uh, it, it probably means he gets offered sorts of. Those sorts of roles, sort of slightly off the wall roles. Uh, that, uh, he's the, the, the face of cool librarianship during the uh, late 90s and early 90s. <laughs> yeah, and also this movie reminded the hell out of me of uh, Phantom of Paradise. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just thought there was a lot of similarity there. Yeah, uh, which you did a season yeah. or so ago. Yeah. Um, so following that, um, we're into November uh, 2021, and you did Ordinary People, uh, which is a 1980 drama uh, directed by Robert Redford and starring Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland. And I don't think I've seen that either. That brought Donald Sutherland back from our earlier discussion with MASH. Is um, Well, they were about eight years apart, but... Uh, that was actually only maybe the third film that I had seen with Donald Sutherland as a, a main part of the cast rather than a supporting role. Donald Sutherland was, was sort of known for his choices that were risky and maybe um, um, very ad, uh, adult comedy, uh, un, kind of underground feel. And MASH has an underground feel to it um, and a lot uh, clute. Uh, that he did with Jane Fonda, uh, he just was known for for making a lot of independent movies, and this was like his big mainstream breakthrough, I think, uh, as, as far as his turn as the father in this movie, and he's he's like, I mean, he he just plays like the quintessential dad of that era, and. Um, Awkwardly, uh, I don't think there's a, a single character of color <laughs> in the entire movie, and it is really strange when that when you go back to uh, uh, those times when people weren't thinking about that at all. Apparently, uh, not even Robert Redford. Um, this was about as waspy, and maybe that was deliberate. I I don't know, but it was really strange not seeing. Anybody that wasn't white uh, and white, 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 white. 
<laughs> Very strange. But it's a classic movie. Timothy Hutton won an Oscar for his portrayal of the very troubled teen. Mary Tyler Moore as his aloof, uh, seemingly uncaring, icy cold mother. She's brilliant in it. Uh, this was Robert Redford's first directorial debut and uh, great movie. And if I remember correctly, speaking of Mary Tyler Moore, I, I don't know that I'm exactly accurate, but I think that this film came in uh, a very difficult time for her because I want to say that Mary Tyler Moore have may, may have recently had some personal drama, like she had lost a family member, if not maybe a, a child of her own. You know, that brings a bell, but I I think you po- that possibly is correct. I. It does. It does seem to me that I've I've read or heard something like that. Because I also believe that this is a time frame where her TV series had maybe have gone off the air, and she didn't have many appearances in film during this period. I, I also believe that that's part of the uh, the personal tragedy that she was going through at the time. But um, you know, bringing it back to ordinary people. That story itself was about loss. She, the, her character, the mother, had lost one of her children to um, drowning. Yeah, in a boating accident. Probably says a lot about me that, uh, um, although he was doing these sorts of serious films, the I mean, I guess the two that I'm going to mention are serious films as well. But uh, um, but the, the the two Donald Sutherland films I think are from the 70s. Our uh, Don't Look Now, which is um, a spooky film set in Venice, and I love Venice, so um, that that's probably part of that because he's the husband in that. Um, and then also Invasion of the Body Snatchers from Ooh, I love that year, one. Yeah, a year or two before Ordinary People. Um, so so he he was doing quite diverse work, really. Uh, yeah. But then you can find that with some actors that um, is, is, is when they stick to one genre, you kind of, you know, say, say somebody's Doctor Who and you like them as Doctor Who and then they just, they go off and they just do, I don't know, Marvel movies and you don't really like Marvel movies. So for 10 years you think, does he, does he, is he still acting? And someone goes, yeah, he's so-and-so in this Marvel movies. And you're like, oh, I have no idea. Uh, whereas, you know, some people do a mixture of work and you know, some people know them from for comedy. Some people know them, from, but they're doing a bit of everything. So they, they still seem to be about. But um, do you find that some actors they go off into a niche, and you think they vanish just because you don't watch that the, the, the sort of the, the sort of films they're in anymore? But um, it, it kind of inspires further discussion of uh, sometimes. Toppy and I run into that that conversation of, oh, you know, this was part of old Hollywood, you know, it was filmed in maybe the 60s or what have you. So you get the understanding that this was the studio system. They they just churned out the films back then because they were a contract player. And now, you know, you get people like you were just saying who you maybe have lost sight of because they're doing different things. And if, if there's somebody who takes a, a more direct interest in their own career, um, they will just do, you know, as they call them, projects that interest them. They're not just going to star in this film or that film because it's sure to be a box office success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, 
it's uh, it's weird how you know depending on what sort of films you like you can have a totally different view of of of, of an actor or actress for, because for, for, because you know you one person watches one type of project that they do and another person watches another type in this typical town in this comfortable home three ordinary people are about to live an extraordinary story but starting all over again the lying the covering up the disappearing for hours i will not stand for it i can't stand it i really can't what kind of psychiatrists are you they all believe in dreams i do believe in dreams only sometimes i want to know what's happening when you're awake i don't want to see any doctors or counselors this is my family and if we have problems and we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home i knew something was wrong even before he tried to kill himself i think it is a very private matter you never came to the hospital now, how do you Conrad, know about the your hospital your mother did come to the hospital Conrad, and you know that i just don't know how to deal with it anymore why are you hassling me huh? why are you trying to make me mad Where are you mad it? no he provokes people I would never have let him put electricity in my head. You blame me for the whole thing. Can't you see anything except in terms of how it affects you? I, I miss it sometimes. The hospital. But that was a hospital. This is the real world. Did it hurt? Never really talked about it. How long are you going to punish yourself? When are you going to quit? I loved him. What in hell has happened? That she hates me. Can't you see that? Mothers don't hate their sons. I mean, there's someone besides your mother you gotta forget. You better make sure that your kids are good and safe. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Just do one wrong thing. And what was the one wrong thing you did? Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, Timothy Hutton, in an extraordinary story of ordinary people. Well, the next film you did was also from 1980, um, and, and, and is described as a drama, but I don't know how the two com two films compare, but this is Touched by Love, which I, I don't think I... I don't think I heard of this one either. You, 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 it's quite good, because you're giving me a list of, of films to catch up with that I haven't seen. But, uh. <laughs> this is a film that I swear, uh, because of it, it came out during my youth, uh, or youth as we sometimes say on our show. <laughs> um, but uh, I swore that this was a television movie because I first caught it on TV, but of course it was a, a premium movie channel, so it wasn't really a TV movie. But um, I am actually wanting to look up um, part of it because some of the people who are in the cast have had a body of work, including, a, well, this is one of few films that uh, Miss Michael Le uh, Learned had done. She was in uh, The Waltons as the mother in the TV series, of course. But this has a uh, up-and-coming young actress, Diane Lane, who would later be in films like uh, Say Anything with John Cusack, and then uh, she was in, uh, much later on, she was in a jazz film. And I'm, I'm actually looking that up right now real quick here. Uh, she was in a, jazz, a film about jazz. And I want to say that it had some of the Bridges brothers in it. Uh, Fabulous Baker Boys. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. But uh, yeah, this movie, Touched by Love, 
uh, was um, the uh, the first film for Diane Lane as a uh, child actor. Basically, she's in her young teens, and then Den- uh, Michael Learned was in it. John Amos, who I'm forgetting her name, but this is one of those things, Paul. Uh, we uh, we sometimes talk about the dark alleys uh, being the uh, the little uh, side steps we find. One of the reasons that this movie, Touched by Love, uh, just kind of tickles my fancy, if you will, is it has an old Hollywood star who a lot of people don't recognize because she had a period that, uh, you know, she wasn't working. But the actress who was in the 90s Sister Act movies as the older nun is an actress whose name is Mary Wicks. And she actually got one of her biggest starring roles in White Christmas. She worked at the uh, the front desk at the hotel when Bing Crosby checked in. So Mary mm-hmm. Wicks is one of the ladies who works in the group home in this Touched by Love story. And it, it was an important film for me to discuss as as some of our picks are because, uh, as I mentioned in our show, I had a sister who survived cancer in her uh, early teens. Mm-hmm. And this was a film that came out during that time. And uh, I tracked down a copy of this and I gave it to her for a birthday present recently because she survived cancer. And, of course, she's a mother of two now. But mm-hmm. it always brings her back to that period where she struggled and she had to survive, much like the characters in this. Because it, it's a, a young girl who I believe, if I'm not right, correct me, she may have had something like cerebral palsy. I believe so, yeah. And, and it, it's the love of the music of Elvis. Right. It, it's, it's, it's a little gem of a movie. It has all the hallmarks, uh, literally, of a hallmark TV movie. And it feels, for all the world, like a TV movie. But that doesn't mean it's not worth seeing. Uh, It's just a quiet, thoughtful movie about a little girl who's uh, not responding to the what little care they can give her because it's, it's a group home and there's many children. And they can't devote themselves to just one person. But this one particular new employee um, who comes aboard this uh, care center fixates on this one girl who nobody, who who it seems nobody is reaching, and and that girl becomes sort of like her mission to improve her life and. Eventually, she, under, she comes to understand that the girl responds to Elvis Presley, um, and it, and like like nothing else, it, and it helps her come out of her shell. And uh, really, quite heartwarming and good movie. And you had a guest on that episode. Matt was in on that one. Matt Burlingame does Chubbs Gone Wild. Um, following following that one. Um, you covered a film called Dutch from 1991 as a John Hughes film. <laughs> I don't think I know that one either. <laughs> You're making it a picky <laughs> uh, Well, I, I, I was leery of this one because <laughs> John Hughes, okay, he's, he's you know, um, got a, had a couple solid hits. But he's also had movies that, oh, uh, okay, Porky's. I just can't, just can't, I just can't. And I was worried that this movie was going to be along those lines, but it was much more, and it had a, it's got a good heart. 
this movie, and I ended up really enjoying it. Yeah, it uh, has Ed O'Neill, which, of course, uh, anybody who hasn't seen Parenthood, or maybe I'm, no, it's not Parenthood, it's Modern Family, sorry, uh, would recognize him from Married with Children. And this, of course, is a, a very different role for him. because. Yeah. Okay, I just want to say that was another reason why <laughs> I went into this, because I can't stand Married with Children. <laughs> Cannot stand it. Ugh. <laughs> I used to. Uh, I, I think when I used to watch late night TV, uh, I'd be videoing. I don't know, night gallery or something, and it would. It would on the videotape. It would come come after the big the title sequence. It just looked totally unappealing. So I never actually watched the episode <laughs> of it. But I just, yeah, I I, uh, I I know of it. It obviously did get shown over here, but like in the wee small hours. But. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, the shortest thing I could say about it is that my husband had a very different childhood than me. His parents were divorced. And uh, that, that program is one of a handful that launched, you know, an alternative network that wasn't part of the, the big three, as we call it here in America. And so, um, you know, it had to be loud and vulgar to get attention. But uh, anyways, Ed O'Neill in Dutch, he's, uh, you know, the the boyfriend of the main character's mother and he's trying to win over his girlfriend's kid. He knows that he doesn't really stand a chance and uh, the the family is somewhat comfortable, conservative, and uh, they've got nice things. And so he's he's got uh, a uh, a big hill to climb because he's what they call working class. He he earned his money, whereas you know the the girl the girlfriend's kid had everything handed to him on a silver platter. So that's the story of Dutch. He has to impress the kid that's his girlfriend's son, and uh, he he has to do it by coming down to his level. <laughs> it's just terrific because the the uh, the advert you know the the trailer for it uh, shows him showing up to the boarding school of this privileged kid and. Um, after a tussle, of course, that you see in the film, the kid is hogtied and being carried to the car on a hockey stick. And Ed O'Neill says to the kid, what do you like to do for fun? And the kid makes some fusses and he says, oh, you like to wiggle and grunt. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a road trip film and it was perfect for the holidays because uh, that's part of the story is that they are going home for, I think, Thanksgiving in this one, which is, uh, you know, sort of a rare story. I, I know that that Thanksgiving is an American holiday, so there are far more Christmas films. But this is a story where they're going home for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I feel like a road trip movie. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're one of my favorite genres. On my first viewings of this film, I, I tend to agree with your perception there that I was concerned about it. But now I realize that possibly the Dutch character is somebody who might not have any kids of his own. So he didn't know that some of the things that he was doing, like he brought back a deck of racy playing cards to share with the young guy, was inappropriate. Because again, maybe he didn't have kids, but he's trying his best. Yeah. He's kind of, he's well-intentioned, but he's kind of a big goofball. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he does inappropriate things. Coincidentally, um, Doyle mentions that fireworks are illegal in his home state, which they, uh, up until more recent years, the majority of fireworks have been illegal in New York. And uh, just a quick side note, uh, I once tried to play it cool when I was a new uncle, and my brother was lighting oh, no. up fireworks. Oh, no, yeah. And, uh, well, anyways, my my brother, um, he hung with the wrong crowd, and he spoke <laughs> when he was a teenager. So I tried to play it cool. And, of course, I can light a simple fireworks off with a lighter. No, oh. of course not. I, I burned my thumb trying to do it. Oh, God, DJ. <laughs> Holy but, cow. It's a good thing you didn't uh, lose a finger. Poke your eye out. Mm-hmm. Good heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, your next episode, I think it's probably your Christmas um, uh, special. It was a Christmas memory from 1966 based on a short story by Truman Capote. Yeah, that uh, it's one of my favorite holiday movies, Christmas movies. It's actually narrated by Capote, and it's just... Uh, this was uh, made for television, um, and uh, it's obscure. Not a lot of people know about this um, little gem, uh, but uh, it's it's just it's just a beautiful, quiet movie with a lot of lot of heart. Geraldine Page stars um, in her hand chewing best in this movie. <laughs> I always, I always joke about her because one of her little actor things that she does is she chews her fingers in a lot of her movies, uh, and I, I just start envisioning her like as soon as she's got her whole hand in her mouth and she's doing lines. <laughs> uh, Trip to Bountiful, she does that finger thing a lot, and she she won an Oscar for that role. Um, and she's just as good in this movie, um, just as charming. They've got a, a kid actor who's who's charming and and kind of a natural. And it's it's based on a, a really short story by Capote. Uh, it really kind of a, a semi autobiographical short story did about a Christmas that he remembered. So very charming. And since this was a television movie, I had, you know, I hadn't experienced it before. I think Toppy had mentioned to me that he sort of has a tradition that he likes to watch this during the holidays. And when I saw this film, it put a lot of things into perspective because there are elements of it that, uh, you know, are still very much in tune and appealing today. I mean, um, this story is set in a time frame, which is, isn't it just on the heels of the depression topic? Yeah. Yeah. So in, if, in not, that, if not in the depression, but yeah, cause they're, they're trying to make ends meet on very little. And, uh, you know, I, I, am of a generation where that was my grandfather's upbringing. He grew up during the depression and many Americans will have that background in their families of being sat down at the dinner table and told you eat everything on your plate because there are starving people in this world and we ha- you know we are more fortunate sort of thing but um that that is part of a christmas memory is that these two people who 
I think are supposed to be distant cousins. They they share a household and they try to make ends meet through difficult times. Yeah, and and the Geraldine Page's character is uh, you know, she's a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Uh, to put it that way, and uh, she's a little eccentric and has led a very, very simple life. In fact, she's never traveled, never in her whole life did she ever travel outside of her little town. And yeah, considering the year, considering the year it was made, I have to ask: uh, um, is it made in color or black and white? Color, and um, it 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 sorely needs a restoration. Oh. Because most of the prints, well, I've never seen a good print of it. Never. Uh, uh, it's it's all, all all the colors are washed out. It needs a restoration badly. But one of the reasons why it's sort of a rare gem is because in that day and age, it was sort of a movie of the week as I was reading about it. It wasn't a feature presentation of its own that was promoted. It was part of a sort of weekly movie of the week because if you look it up you don't find it under the specific title of a christmas memory it's considered an episode of a series uh, of weekly movies so that's that's part of why it's a rare gem and we did mention uh, although we we didn't really compare it in more recent years there was a uh, a remake starring patty duke where they sort of built upon the characters to make it different. They explored the two main characters possibly being cousins and her being a little simple-minded. Yeah, yeah, she's she's quite simple-minded. The character of Geraldine Page, um, like her, you know, her main. She has this idea that she's going to make fruitcakes and send it to the president of the United States. And she's convinced <laughs> that he'll get it. And she pictures him eating it. And, you know, it's just a lovely little movie. And um, I see that the, the first film you discussed in January, 2022 is called Madhouse. Now, I, I, um, the only Madhouse I know is a horror film from the seventies with, uh, Vincent Price, I think, uh, and, and this is described as a screwball comedy, so presumably not a remake of that. <laughs> no, this is, of course, my doing. I I drag, to I take Toppy to the most interesting places, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, Madhouse is a film that stars um, those who are into uh, the the situation comedies of. Uh, weeknights on a network television you would recognize her uh she was the boss on cheers after shelly long had left i'm speaking about kirstie alley and this film pairs kirstie alley and john larroquette who had been for so many years on the nbc court series night court and um i'm taking a look at this because i want to say the guy who who did this film and when i say that i mean the director had also done other things but i think i'm wrong it, it was just a time and place oh no sorry he did he worked with kirstie alley so of course he's done some of the look who's talking movies but madhouse is one of those films that uh i i associate so much with uh, my teens because um after four years of being in the military 
my brother-in-law and sister came home and uh, for a while there they couldn't find a new job like so many people who are changing chapters in their lives and reacquainting with civilian life they lived in my parents basement and i was 11 when i became an uncle so i wasn't quite yet ready to get rid of my toys and i remember my nephews um inviting themselves into my room and you know just taking things that didn't belong to them but madhouse is kind of that it's about house guests that outstay their welcome and it just goes to the farthest reaches of your imagination because um there's just some wonderful hysterical moments firstly i should explain of course madhouse is about a young couple who gets their first house and suddenly through a calamity of events their family members all get invited or invite themselves into their house and end up staying there much more long-term than short-term. And everyone's got a reason for being there. The pregnant lady tripped on the front doorstep. Oh God, she's got to stay at our house for the rest of her pregnancy now. (laughs) (laughs) Then we accidentally caught the neighbor's house on fire while we were making love. So if we don't want him to sue us, we got to let him live with us now. And uh, Just my favorite moment in this movie, Paul, is when they decide to turn the tables on their uninvited guests and Kirstie Alley's character goes into the room that her gold digging sister is staying in. And she announces that she's coming in and her sister says, I'm not decent. She breaks down the door. Kirstie Alley does. And she has ripped open her blouse just to show herself in her bra. And she, her sister says, I'm not decent. And then she says, of course, after she's kicked open the door and ripped open her blouse, tell me something I don't know. And she, she just goes to town because her sister's gold digger likes her nice things. And then she takes spray paint and she says to her sister, I want your gold digging lily liver beep out of my house. And she just spray paints all of her sister's fine furs and clothes. <laughs> now you describe it. You, didn't you do a watch party for this episode? I think we did, didn't we? I think so. Cause yeah. They, I could not just describe it as I did. I had to share it. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think that's one of the watch the watch parties I uh, I, I caught because it's yeah. all coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a true screwball comedy, uh, in the in the best sense. And if you like Kirstie Alley, you're you're gonna like this movie. She's well, great in it. Nineteen ninety. Uh, I see. So, um, following on from that, you you did. Now, I'm not sure if this is um, the, the whole series or just a particular episode, but you, you did Columbo um, with uh, Peter Falk, of course. How, how did you, you uh, look at that one? Well, it's just one of those classic TV series that was a little unusual in, in that it wasn't a weekly series. I think maybe there were three of them a year. But it did span decades, and the character became just a classic, iconic t- uh, portrayal by Peter Falk of a of a rumpled detective uh, who um, slowly figures out impossible uh, crimes, uh, murders, and it's unusual in that the first. 15 minutes of every movie length uh, episode 
we see exactly how the crime is committed. And uh, it's not a mystery to us. It's a mystery to Columbo. Because we know who did it, we watch him as he gets closer and closer to the truth. And that's one of the things that made it unusual. Also, a uh, product of his times, uh, you, you know, you, you get these great guest stars. If you like old television, you know, you can't help not love all the guest stars uh, who mainly had their careers in television. Um, but some... Some were movie stars, but maybe maybe the the height of their popularity was was a, a bit distant by them, and uh, it's, it wasn't. It's one of those shows where half the fun is is the the guest star. It's um, one of the shows I knew about, and maybe had watched the odd episode here or there, and then a few years ago it was on a channel that uh, I I used to tune into a lot, and and I ended up sitting. The record for them and i think i didn't see them in order but uh, although i now own them on dvd but i i saw them sort of in whatever order this channel showed them in so i think i've seen yeah almost every plot involves someone some that people of of great wealth and they live in very large yeah. uh mansions and um and you know peter falk's character is, is just this humble you know low paid but uh, respected inspector um, and you know he's got this rumpled stained um, uh, coat that he wears constantly and he's constantly got a cigar and, and he needs to put his ashes somewhere and it's, it's and he drives this old car old beat up car and the, the and, fun the fun is uh, contrasting, you know, Peter Falk is a bit of a fish out of water in these really rich environments, and but he's he's totally unconcerned about it. He's totally not concerned about his appearance at all. In, in, in the early episodes, he also has that big floppy-eared dog as well, doesn't he? Yeah, at, at some point... Uh, uh, somebody on the show said, you know, we, we ought to bring in, because Columbo constantly talked about his wife. Um, and somebody said, you know, we, we should feature her more, like make her an actual character. And I don't remember who it was, Falk or somebody said, just absolutely said, no, we're not going to do that. That is a really wrong move. And a compromise was made believe it or not, uh, to have Columbo have this droopy dog um, as, and that was the compromise. Okay, you want a bit of his home life? Well, he's got a dog now. And so this goofy, droopy dog uh, who mainly just has to sit in the car and wait for Columbo to do his thing, um, you know, and it's, it's just a terribly dreary dog. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, I have to wonder if the conversation involved, uh, you know, the discussion about uh, bringing the wife on was uh, like they talk about a TV show having a baby. You know, you know, the show is winding down when they decide that the couple is going to have a baby because that means yeah. the story. So that's the idea. Is, uh, no, we are not bringing the wife on because that means the show is going to be over soon. <laughs> it might have been but, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> But this this is the thing. Toppy and I introduce each other to these things 
And it's through these little breadcrumb approaches like, oh, let's watch Columbo. Oh, come on, Peter Falk is in it. And it ran forever. And so that's what got me because we had watched the year before. We watched The In-Laws with Alan Arkin. And that Toppy didn't know this, but Cindy Lauper, who is my first um, pop star crush of my youth, her first film had Peter Falk in it as one of her co-stars. And so although I had not seen much of the Columbo series, I, of course, knew enough about uh, Peter Falk that I was interested in seeing Columbo because it's one of those things that I'm going to get around to it eventually and come to find out, of course. It's like a favorite restaurant. You hang out there often enough and other people are going to come by, meet interesting people. Ruth Gordon, of all people, had a guest appearance in one of the episodes of Columbo and she got to play such a delicious character that's very different than what she usually is. She's usually the sweet old lady who just gets paid to swear. And she got to be the novelist who maybe murdered people. <laughs> yeah. No, like I said, the great deal of the joy of the series are the guest stars. Uh, you know, the chat famously guest starred in more, more than one. I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, just you'll you'll love to find out all the guest stars that were on it. Roddy McDowell, I, I can't list them all. Uh, but uh, I know Patrick McGowan from The Prisoner was in on about three or four, and he even directed some episodes. But I think he was friends with Peter Falk. So, uh-uh. and the writing uh, that was done on this also, uh, the the person who did some of the writing worked on Murder She Wrote, which is that a very different show? You just you know, switch out the main character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Murder, She Wrote is pretty formulaic, but I, I, I think Columbo w- was much, much more clever of a show. I do remember one or two episodes where they do play with the format and, and you think, you know, you know, because you're expecting to see the killer who's the guest star, and then one or two of them, you think that's what you've seen, but that turns out not to be quite the truth. But, uh, Things didn't always happen like you think they have. And Columbo uh, ended up being our most popular episode of this mm. season. That's the one that people have listened to the most. Mm. Yeah, it was a very, very popular character, very popular show. Uh, that that's that really holds up. We are at about the halfway mark in our show, so we're going to step out here to the candy counter. I'll have an O. Henry, Miss Gertie. That was one of Dad's favorite candies. And uh, we are going to entertain you for about three minutes-ish with an interview from inside the actor's studio, Mr. Falk and Mr. James Lipton. With more pleasure than I can express, we come to Colombo. Clearly, a decision was made very early on to guard Columbo's privacy. It is one of the most brilliant strokes of this brilliant series. Uh, we know very little about him. Does he still drive that Peugeot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know that he has children, but we don't know how many. Uh, we know that he like his favorite song is... This old man, he played one. That's right. He played knick-knack on my thumb. <laughs> 
Um, now, <laughs> William Link has made a very interesting suggestion. He has said that it is possible, remember, he's one of the creators of the show, that there is no Mrs. Columbo, and that she is utilized and created by him in order to make a point. I disagree. I disagree. I think he does have a wife. But I'm not sure how many relatives he has. How did the raincoat originate? I thought that I had read in the script that he was wearing a raincoat. Lincoln Levinson, they claimed that it, uh, it never said a raincoat, that it was a top coat. But uh, that's my memory. And uh, I knew of a raincoat that I wanted to wear, and that was mine. I liked it. I felt comfortable in it. And I also had a pair of shoes that I wanted to wear because they were brown and they, were, they had a high top on them. And it looked like something that an immigrant from, from Italy would wear. So now we're into brown. We've got brown shoes, we've got a brown raincoat, and I had a suit there. The suit was all right. I said, maybe could you dye that brown? So they dyed that brown. And the shirt, we dyed that base. So we had a symphony of brown. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I felt that uh, dread would be, would be good for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was one concession to color, and that was that drab green tie. Right. And right. that was his one burst of color. <laughs> Has the raincoat been retired? Well, people say that it's in the Smithsonian Institute, and... Uh, if my second floor closet is the Smithsonian Institute, <laughs> that's where it is. I, I'm curious uh, to know how much you've contributed to the writing of that show. Colombo has a, a shoe fetish. He frequently asks these rich folks, how much do those shoes cost, right? Right. That, that's my contribution, to be able to lean over to the defense attorney and say confidentially, what did what, you pay for those shoes? <laughs> I, I mean, that just tickles you to do that. The most famous Colombo trademark, of course, is the false exit, the return, and the lethal one more thing. Was that there from the beginning? Was it in the original? Yes, that was in the original. And the, the trick then was, once it was in the original, was in the... 60 succeeding shows to find ways to do it with some originality and some difference. Walk out, actually leave, come back, tap on a window from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we tried every possible way to give that variety. How many Emmys have you won for Colombo? Four. 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 Now, the... Um the next show you covered was a show that I think did get shown in the UK, but my memory of it was that it got shown at sort of a time when people weren't really watching because it was like six o'clock or something. So I'm sure it had a following, but I don't think it ever got a prime time slot. And that, that is Kate and Ally um, from 1984. Well, that's when it started, I guess. You know, no, um, I, I want to say that this is something that Toppy was possibly aware of, but maybe it wasn't what we like to call in his wheelhouse because he was more in tune with like um, the the police dramas. Right, Toppy? Am I accurate in saying that? Um, well, accurate in that I, I tended to not see a lot of the what what we think of as sitcoms, half hour 
comedy shows because I was probably watching one, you know, an hour long drama of some sort or other. Um, and I, 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 there's very few sitcoms I, I ever kind of got into, but they tended to be shows like All in the Family and MASH. Um, and, and then, you know, you've got the flip side of that in that god-awful Three's Company, you know, in my opinion, you know, that's... <laughs> and so I certainly knew of the show, but I was never attracted to watching it. So uh, I, I, I did, and found out that uh, it, it would fall under the category of well-written shows like MASH and All in the Family. So this is, this is a sitcom that, um, well, at least in my mind, you know, had some thoughtfulness behind it, whereas I don't think there's an ounce of thoughtfulness in Three's Company and their ilk. <laughs> uh, but this, this, this series did. They tackled some issues there, and they they did it well. And the two characters, the two moms, you know, their their relationship is important, and their kids are important. And so good show. This show was a vehicle that helped the two actresses in the leading roles kind of rise to stardom. In that, um, Jane Curtin, who plays the blonde Allie character, and she's the uh, the New England housewife who uh, really did not aspire to anything greater in life than to be a doctor's wife. And she finds herself divorced and having to raise her kids in Manhattan, basically, or although it might have been one of the, the boroughs. I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, in, in an apartment that these days nobody could afford because it was trendy. But, uh, you know, she ends up calling up her best friend, Allie who uh, had a very different home life than her. She was sort of a, a hippie type that never aspired to the um, country club greatness. But Jane Curtin had been married to a man who, in the uh, early days of the 80s, had been in charge of Saturday Night Live. And she had, of course, been part of the the uh, celebrated, most popular uh, era of the Saturday Night Live cast. You know, she had worked with Chevy Chase and um, I'm forgetting his Jim, James Belushi and Jim, 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 Belushi. Jim Belushi. Yeah. And, you know, she was offered her own show. And a lot of the interviews from that time frame talk about the fact that she almost passed on this show because it was originally going to be titled My Two Moms or My Two Mommies, which would have been quite controversial for an 80s TV series in an era when, you know, both America and Britain had conservative leadership. And uh, she somehow got talked into it when they changed the name to Kate and Alley because Susan St. James, who had been on Macmillan and Wife, uh, agreed to be her co-star. And, you know, this this came out in a period which was part of my youth when shows like The Cosby Show that we don't talk about anymore because of people who were involved in it. But Kate and Allie showed that, um, you know, families are not what we were raised to believe. They are not about a mother and a father and, you know, Betty Joe and Bobby Sue going to the dance and whatever. No, it's two people who uh, had a turn of events in their lives because their relationships fell apart. And suddenly 
two best friends are relying upon each other to raise their kids and to help to make decisions. So it was it was a very um, interesting, different and I guess groundbreaking show for its time, because uh, as we mentioned in our discussion, there actually was an episode where Kate and Allie, who had been living in their apartment for maybe a couple of years or so, um, were being threatened to have their rent raised by their landlady, who turns out was a lesbian. And um, she found out that Kate and Allie were not lovers, so they were going to raise the rent. But if they had been a couple, their rent would have stayed the same. So talk about a double standard. And those were the kind of things that Kate and Allie explored. It only got, well, actually, it did get about five or six seasons. It's one of those shows that they say it it, it kind of had too many trips to the well. And in later seasons, the main character remarried and the best friend was now the third wheel. But uh, it, it was a very good show for the run it had. Well, following that, you covered a sci-fi comedy called Heartbeeps from 1981. Uh, another one I've never heard of. Well, this one um, I think was DJ's pick, but I, I think it stands out mostly because of the actor who's in it um, was such a mysterious figure in the world of entertainment, and that's Andy Kaufman. And, okay, do, is this his only movie? I think it may have been because I think so. We lost him early. He had, I think, he had cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. He ended. God only knows what he would have gone on to do had he stayed alive, because he was a performance. God, it's so hard to describe. Uh, he delighted in in real life creating opportunities for a performance where people didn't really necessarily know he was performing. How did it, can you describe it any better, DJ? Andy well, Kaufman, the mystery of Andy Kaufman? They, he, he tried to call himself, he, he would correct people when they tried to talk about him as an actor, and he would say, no, I'm a song and dance man. But I think probably the closest thing we have to his type of person is Sasha Baron Cohen, who famously played the character of Borat. Yes, it's, that's a good, that's, yeah, okay. So that's that's the type of person that Andy Kaufman was, was that he was sort of, um, well, he was a performance artist, kind of a, yeah, yes. a shock type of thing. A little bit, shock was, was in there. Well, okay, uh, he once pre- sold out, I don't know, some concert hall or wherever it was he was performing, People expected a certain something, and instead he read a book. And as you can imagine, um, people kind of didn't want to sit still for that, but he just kept reading, and they kept thinking, well, he's going to move on to something else eventually. But he kept reading. (laughs) And that was his idea of an interesting performance. Uh, A lot of it was left up to chance, and... And he was waiting. Part of the performance was waiting to see what the audience was going to do. Those are the kinds of weird things that interested him. I, I may be wrong, but I think in the UK, he may almost be best known for being referenced in the famous, again, I'm not even sure if it's a famous song in America, but the song Man in the Moon by R.E.M. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a documentary? Well, isn't there, wasn't there a film 
about Andy Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, Jim Carrey um, portrayed him, and it 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 if you see that you it does give you an idea of of really what an unusual person um, in real life Andy Kaufman was. Now, notice that we haven't really talked about the movie, and that's because the movie <laughs> itself maybe not all that great or interesting. Uh, though it has, uh, you know, Bernadette Peters as another robot, uh, and uh, they're fleeing uh, the maker, the people that made them. They're like runaway robots. It's kind of another road movie, actually. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it it's okay. I mean, it's it's a it's a cute movie. Um, <laughs> oh, but you know, you just answered the re- the gave the answer to the reason why I chose Heartbeats because it's one of Bernadette Peters' early pro- films. She also had just starred in Annie with Carol Burnett, and um, I'm forgetting his name from Rocky or oh Tim Burton yeah. and. Uh, you know, so uh, heart beeps is something that's kind of odd, and maybe it was a little ahead of its time because you get these are robots who uh, have programs for personality, and they explore relationships from that perspective of not being human, but trying to understand the human condition. And Bernadette Peters was just so charming in that film because she was supposed to be, uh, <laughs> she was pro- uh, programmed for protocol for social graces. She was supposed to attend cocktail parties and pool parties and be the pretty face that uh, knows the art of conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's got a it, it's got a it's a movie with a heart. I mean, it's got a, a bit of a you know, tearjerker ending um, to some extent. And I, I believe it was an absolute flop in the box office. But those are the kinds of movies we love here at Bad Day <laughs> Minutia. Somehow, somehow we, we do a lot of movies that uh, originally flopped. <laughs> now, the next film you covered was an animation. Uh, another one from 1980, um, Animal Olympics. Um, yeah, that, that was a listener request. We occasionally do get listener requests. We really try to follow through and uh, do them. Uh, and uh, some some people have had to wait quite a while before we got to theirs. But uh, uh, this, you know, this was something like I had never experienced before. And it it's making and, and the reason it came about and what it became uh, – is a really interesting part of it. Uh, the cartoon itself, you know, it doesn't have super great animation. It's not a Disney cartoon, okay? Not a Disney cartoon. Um, but it's um, it's pretty damn interesting. Uh, I don't even know. It, it just ha- it was put together to sort of coincide with the Olympics, um, and it's it's literally like uh, what if these what if these animals were participants in and in, in the Olympics and they all live in an animal world where everybody's you know an animal that talks and uh, what did you what do you what did you think of it? It was very cute and as you were saying it was a listener request so 
I don't think it would have been, quote unquote, on my radar if someone hadn't suggested it. But it has all the potential for us to eventually discover it. Because let's be honest, some of the programs that we discuss are something akin to uh, Gertie finding an 8mm film under a chair when she's cleaned. Um, (laughs) But this has voice talent of actors who you don't normally associate with just doing voice work. Because nowadays, people who work in, uh, you know, voice industry aren't necessarily people that ever appear in front of the camera. But um, sort of on that that same vein that we were talking about Saturday Night Live personalities, Gilda Radner is one of the people who lent her voice to this. And also Billy Crystal in the beginnings of his career and uh, as Toppy was saying, this was put together to sort of promote the Olympics, which the United States ended up boycotting in 1980 because it was hosted by Russia. So, um, but it was very entertaining because uh, just like the Olympics, um, they they tried to push boundaries and to promote open-mindedness, and they even have a relationship develop between two of the characters mm-hmm. you know they're they're not even of the same species never uh-huh. mind human beings talking about <laughs> oh you know we create we both grew up from different sides of the of the tracks then <laughs> this story albeit an animated feature uh, you, you've got athletes who are literally different species <laughs> you know uh getting fond of each other while competing at the same time so the film you covered after um, this, I think it's another of the most popular episodes this year. It's A Patch of Blue from 1965 with Sidney Poitier and Shelley Winters. Yeah, that was my choice. That's um, A lot of times we choose things, uh, movies that for some reason linger in our memory. And for me, Patch of Blue was one of them because I'd seen it years ago on television. And it just stayed with me. It and I just always remembered it. And um, eventually I said, oh, my goodness, it's right here on YouTube for free. And I watched it and it's, you know, it re- made me remember why I liked it. It's a it's a um, a quiet little movie about a blind girl who is living in squalor, really, with her mother and her mother's father, who are drunks. And her life is basically picking up after them. She never leaves the apartment, the dingy, awful apartment they have. And um, they go off to work with hangovers every morning. And her name is Selena, but they pronounce it Selena. Not deliberately. It's just, you know, they're kind of vulgar people who uh, have speech of of, uh, people, you know, who are uh, living tough lives. So she doesn't even know how to pronounce her own name. It's Sidney Poitier who hears it and says, Selena, do you mean Selena? And she says, I've never heard it pronounced that way. So it's it's a story of this um, black guy who sees her in a park and just can't help himself and tries to better her life as she as he learns more about her and how she really lives. He, he just, he he feels 
like he's just got to do something to improve this woman's life. And that's that's what the movie is about. You know, albeit Sidney Poitier is, of course, a celebrated actor who has, you know, a large body of work. I had only seen a handful of his films, but of course, most iconically, and this is, you know, where Toppy talked me into to seeing this film. Not that it takes a lot of doing most of the time, <laughs> but once you mention certain key actors, it's like uh, having a play date, you know, oh, this film's got Shelley Winters and Sidney Poitier in it. I'm like, what? Well, sign me up. You know, I, yeah. I had seen Sidney Poitier and guess who's coming to dinner? One of his most iconic and famous roles, of course, with Katherine Hepburn. And so, of course, I wanted to watch this. And Shelley Winters, come to find out, of course, uh, outside of this film, she had um, she had difficulties with the character she had to play because in her own personal life she was a much more open-minded and diverse person who uh you know supported worthy causes like um i'm uh, equality you know so it was just interesting seeing her playing this character which of course a lot of times when you see actors in roles uh they're sometimes exploring what it is to break out of that box. You know, you've got somebody who's associated with this role, like Andy Kaufman in Saturday in um, Taxi. He played Latka, who is a, an immigrant, and he tries to play other things, but everyone's like, no, we want you to do Latka. And he's like, well, I just wanted to read you this this book of literature I bought. That's part of what Toppy was saying. You know, he was uh, he was a performer, but people associated him with a role. So, you know, a patch of blue, Shelley Winters, she plays the terrible mother who treats her her own daughter. Come to find out you, you spend the first I don't know if it's 20 or 30 minutes of a patch of blue wondering what this young girl's relationship is with these two older people. And then you realize that's not just anybody. That's her mother. So that's part yeah. of the the uh, enigma, the the um, kind of wonder of a patch of blue is that uh, this young girl went through a trauma that's partly her mother's fault, but yet she doesn't treat her uh, very kindly for somebody who was the cause of you know the trauma in her life. And then she meets a man from a very different uh, you know life. Uh, he's, I guess he's a medical student, I think, Poppy. He works yeah, at the yeah. hospital with his brother, and he sees her as, you know, somebody who is treated unfairly, and he wants to help her out in life. And uh, the, one of the best parts of that film is just them hanging out in the park, and he has gone to the grocery store, and one of the things he has in his bag is just pineapple juice. You know, you wouldn't think anything of it, but this girl who hasn't even heard her name pronounced correctly, has never had pineapple juice. And he just turns her world on end because she's never had it. And her her face just lights up. It's like she's she's being introduced to the tropics and the sunshine for the first time in her life. Yeah, and of course he goes on to introduce her to all kinds of things. Number one, he teaches her how to navigate and leave the apartment on her own and she, it teaches her how she can walk down the street and cross the 
you know, cross the street and, and counter steps and he introduces her to Braille. You know, things that she had absolutely no no idea about at all that there were things like this in the world. So her universe is expanded um, greatly. Anyways, nice, nice, quiet little movie. Alrighty, well, we are going to step on over here to the refreshment stand. No! And, uh, you know, I think in honor of tonight's show, we're going to have a little something with pineapple. What? Why is that an honor? Oh, no. No, I do. For a moment in the park. Get me. Yeah. Get me one of those drinks with the paper umbrella. (laughs) By the way, did you notice the packaging that pineapple juice came in? Wasn't that curious? Oh, that was very period specific. Yeah. You know, we don't have things like that now. No, that was an odd paper container. And, uh, you know, everything's plastic with foil and it would have gotten crumpled up in the trash. Anyways, Elizabeth Hartman made pineapple juice famous. Not really. But anyways, OK, I'll shut up now. OK, so this is an interview with Mr. Sidney Poitier, the star of tonight's film. This is from 1985, so it is a number of years later. However, he's talking about the beginning of his career with the host of Good Morning America. I arrived in New York. I had three bucks. I had no friends, no family, no relations, no addresses. I knew no one. I got off at the bus station of 50th Street and 8th Avenue. I'm walking up and down Broadway. I am absolutely, I am transfixed by the lights and the traffic and the people. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. So I walked up and down Broadway from 42nd Street to 50th Street, back to 42nd, back to 50th, just marching up and down. In the meantime, I'm buying hot dogs and malted milks. In no time, I'm busted. (laughs) 15 years old, surviving on your own on the street in New York. How did you survive? Okay, in the window, there's a sign that says, relief dishwasher wanted. And I went down there and they put me to work. Not only did they put me to work, they were paying four bucks a night and I could eat the three meals. So when I finished the first night's work, I went to the bus station, got my little valise out, intending not to spend my four dollars as I spent my three dollars. I went to sleep in the toilet. Used to be pay toilets in the and it cost a nickel. So I put a nickel in the thing and I got in, I put down the seat, I sat there, put my feet up against the door, and I would sleep. Uncomfortably, needless to say. Okay. Now, t- uh, talking about re- key actors, um, we've got an actor turning up in the next film who we've seen uh, already this, this season, um, Eye of the Needle, starring Donald Sutherland from 1981. <laughs> yeah, uh, another one of my choices, I think, and... Just love those good thrillers. It was just a good thriller. And, uh, you know, it rolls all the way through to have a, a really suspenseful climax. And uh, it was based on a famous uh, novel that, that sold well and uh, by a popular author of the day. And uh, just a good thriller. Now, I'm afraid we're coming towards the end of the show, so we may have to speed up on the last few films, but uh, let's let's group them. Uh, the next two are Little Voice from 1998 and Soap from 1977. Both comedies, but very different. 
The Little Voice was an important film for me to discuss because it came out uh, during a period where I had just left home. And the character who's played by, of course, the the celebrated British actress Jane Horrocks, who was, of course, the uh, kind of um, airheaded assistant in Absolutely Fabulous. And uh, it had also, um, uh, I, I want to say, Brenda Blythen as, as uh, the mother. But anyways, uh, it's a young girl whose father had a great love of music, and he passed before his time. She's soft-spoken, and... Um, much like myself, where my happiest moments in life are remembering the TV shows and movies that I enjoyed with my father, Little Voice is about a young girl who uh, is socially awkward, and her mother is very outgoing and boisterous, and nobody gets a word in, and her evenings are spent enjoying the music of the artists that were his her father's favorites. And she actually ends up having a talent for song, and is discovered by a character played by Michael Caine. But Little Voice is kind of a, a shrinking violet film uh, about coming out of your shell and discovering that you have something that's special. Yeah, most memorable for me because it was an unusually told story. It's an odd movie, and the choices they make are are interesting, like... Um, you know, I'd call this movie like one of a kind. Uh, it's never what you think it really is. or uh, And just totally unique. That's the way I remember it. Which were your dad's favorites? Them three there. Oh, good. You know, we'll... we'll... Oh, no, no. What? No, well, I, I, I was just thinking we, we could have included them uh, in the, uh, you know, the act. But we're not doing it now. I bet your dad would have liked that, though, eh? A tribute to his life's loves. One love is songs, sung by his only other love, his daughter. Oh, that would have really been something, eh? Yeah, shame. Because the man and his music, they don't get much respect, do they? You know what I mean? I'll do it. And Soap, uh, that's a that's a TV series, isn't it? But that's a lot more slapstick style of comedy. Yeah. Um, uh, this is another one that, that I just, just never logged any time with. And... Again, I was surprised that it it was a very smartly written show, and you know had definitely had characteristics of a of a soap opera in a traditional way, but but it was in the format of a sitcom, but the stories lingered on uh, just like a soap opera would, and it it would carry over episode to episode. And um, again, a show that that um, I just never experienced and wound up enjoying tipping my toe in. Uh, and I think that was your choice, DJ. Uh, yes, actually, this was a listener request. And what, uh-huh. it, and, uh, what intrigued me about it, of course, is that one of the stars of Soap uh, was Billy Crystal. This is one of the vehicles that launched his career into uh, notoriety. 
And it also had Catherine Hellman, who by my time had been the the kind older mother in the uh, sitcom Who's the Boss, which, of course, had Tony Danza and Judith Light in it. And, you know, it, it launched many people's careers. But uh, you, you put Catherine Hellman in a TV show where she's a star in Billy Crystal. And, of course, I'm going to want to watch it. And it was a listener request. Yeah. And my favorite character was um, a very secondary character, but because I like ventriloquism, it's this nut job who constantly has a dummy uh, like it's a real thing, and it, the dummy never leaves its, his side. And the guy was a, the actor was a, a real ventriloquist and and uh, pretty talented. Anyways, it, it's that's what it was. It was a bunch of oddball characters coming together. And stories that, you know, meant a little something. They they weren't vacuous, stupid stories. They were, they had some substance to it. Now the the last the, well the, the sort of penultimate batch, um, very different films, no doubt. We have Key Largo from 1948. We have Making Love from 1982, and The Broken Hearts Club from 2000. What can you tell me about? I really. All of those I've heard of Key Largo, but again, um, haven't seen it. Well, it's um, one of the great pairings of Laura, uh, Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. It's an old black and white movie classic, and uh, it's it's just another one of those movies where you, for me, that you know, you saw it and you never forgot it. So I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to re, you know, reintroduce that and hopefully people, um, you know, maybe went and saw this movie that they, that's been around for years and, uh, it's so great. And, and Edward G. Robinson is in it. And I mean, it, it, for me, it doesn't get better than a movie like Key Largo and in the, the center, it all takes place, uh, in the keys, Key Largo and, there's this threat of a hurricane approaching. A uh, hotel owner um, who's who's old and and in a wheelchair, and his daughter and Humphrey Bogart comes into their life and you know saves them basically from a group of mobsters who have taken up residence and sort of taken control of the hotel. So you know it's you, you don't get any more classic Hollywood than that. I just say Lauren Bacall is a favorite actress of mine from old Hollywood. I, mean, I, I didn't catch on to her work until much later. One of the first films I saw her in had Dan Aykroyd and Jack Lemmon in it. Uh, we talked about it last year, My Fellow Americans. It was in the 90s. But that introduced me to Lauren Bacall. And, of course, when Toppy told me, you know, there was this, this film with uh, Humphrey Bogart when he was still with us. And, of course, by the way, Bogart and Bacall were married. And, uh, you know, it's set in the South here. I want to watch this. Key Largo, you know, something's afoot. And it it was just quite an interesting film because um, the owner of the hotel was friendly with the locals. But the locals weren't just townspeople. They were actual, you know, what we call these days indigenous people, first peoples, Native Americans, and he was concerned that they were being displaced by the storm. But the mobsters who were taking over the hotel, they paid them no mind. And so it was kind of an afterthought, but they they 
they pointed it out in the film. You know, these four people uh, were, you know, shut out during the storm. Yeah. And the hotel owner is Lionel Barrymore. And uh, he's the guy that was the villain in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and uh, this is this is another one of his great roles. DJ, what was going on with uh, the film industry? Who was competing with Key Largo? Oh, okay. So, in theaters back in 1948, and this was long enough ago that uh, we, we didn't really keep track of the box office the same way we do nowadays. But uh, in the world of film, in 1948, at the Academy Awards... Best film went to uh, a feature directed by tonight's director, Mr. John Huston. But for 1948 was a big year for John Huston. It was the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And um, the synopsis of that is, if you haven't seen it, two dead on their luck Americans searching for work in the 20s in Mexico convince an old prospector to help him mine for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And of course, yes. it's a John Huston movie. And, and, uh, and by the way, John Huston uh, is also an actor. He portrayed many characters in many of his movies, and then he portrayed characters in other people's movies. And uh, John Huston was the old prospector in uh, Treasure. Mm-mm. And uh, in 48 at the Academy Awards, Best, Best Actress. Now, here's a Star Trek connection for you. Jane Wyman. Now, when I first heard that name, it was because of Back to the Future. And of course, they were talking about Ronald Reagan being the president. And in 1955, uh, the impression was, if Ronald Reagan's president, who was the first lady? Jane Wyman? Because she co-starred with him in a lot of films then. But but, uh, Jane Wyman uh, and uh, later Spock's mommy on Star Trek. Uh, playing Amanda Grayson, she and by God, she 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 went all the way up to the movies, mm-hmm. didn't she? Yes, she did. Uh, then, Star Trek Four was, I think, her last appearance as Spock's mom. Yes, Jane Wyman won Best Actress in a film called Johnny Belinda, and the story of that is a kind doctor volunteers to tutor a deaf mute woman, but scandals start to to swirl when this pupil is raped and falls pregnant. So, that might be a interesting film just um, for the challenge of the the role. Um, also, in uh, she won an Oscar for that. By yes, the way. she did. And uh, also in '48, uh, for Best Actor that year, it went to Mr. Lawrence. I think it was Sir later on, Sir Lawrence Olivier, in his portrayal of Hamlet in a UK film that was based upon the Shakespeare play of the same name. And what about Making Love in the Broken Hearts Club? Um, what can you tell me about those two? Well, we should mention that each year we try to do something uh, in recognition of gay pride. And uh, June is often celebrated as Pride Month in uh, many of America's bigger cities. So um, these two films were introduced to us partly by listeners. I know that uh, a previous collaborator, a guest... Um, on a past episode of Matinee Minutia, 
He's a host of a jazz station in Denver, and I'm, I apologize if I'm forgetting his name right now. Steve, I think, is his name. Yeah. Mentioned Making Love as one of those films that he saw in the theater. And to read about it, people actually were so uh, shocked by it that they walked out. Because 1982, um, this film had ja- uh, Jacqueline, was it Jacqueline Smith Toppy? No, um, Kate Jackson. Uh, Kate Jackson, yeah. Kate Jackson, also from Charlie's Angels. Kate Jackson was in this film, and it was about a man who uh, discovered that he was interested in men. He's a happily married guy. He's actually a doctor. He and his wife have bought a house. And suddenly, life turns on end when he discovers he enjoys the company of men. This film came out in 82, and that was, you know, the height the scare of the AIDS epidemic when we we have very conservative leadership in both of our countries and people it, felt, it wasn't it wasn't the height but it was the beginning the beginning uh, okay. yeah but uh, you know then it was pretty much a death sentence if you were diagnosed and you were positive because within it, it wasn't until about a decade later that we started having the life-saving medicines that we did that allowed people to to live with yeah, yeah, and this movie exists in a time, you know, it was made slightly before anyone knew anything about HIV, uh, and so it doesn't it doesn't deal with that topic at all. Uh, um, but it, you know, it was it is not a, a fun movie. It was very somber and very. They tried to do it very realistically, and. Uh, uh, it just, you know, people weren't ready, you know, people were not ready to enjoy or learn or want to see a movie like this. So it was a massive flop and kind of killed Harry Hamlin's career for a good long time. <laughs> the poor guy. Uh, I think that for no other reason that that it explores, you know, that that um, very different storyline of a man who realizes he's gay but also, I think that this may be one of the first films, at least in America, to show two men kissing on screen. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, you know, it was a, I don't know, it, it's amazing it ever got made. It really is. Uh, and uh, um, and just, just it's, it, it, the, it's got a happy ending for uh, the guy, you know, who eventually divorces his wife and finds a man and they live apparently happily ever after. Yes. Uh, and he finds out that uh, his wife remarried and uh, had a kid that they named after their favorite author in college because they met in school, basically. And the Broken Hearts Club. Well, that one was um, a, a favorite. Actually, it was another listener request of our often guest, Jamanda Martini, who co-hosted with us in that episode. And uh, Broken Hearts Club is a circle of friends in Los Angeles. And um, I'm forgetting his name now, but the actor who played the father on Frasier uh, starred in this. He was the proprietor of the rest, a neighborhood restaurant where uh, many of the young gay men uh, got their jobs. They, he was kind of a... A uh, well, I'm not sure what the the masculine version, but like a den mother type of character. 
and uh, each of them were exploring what it was like the the uh, the reality of what it is to be a gay man in uh, let's see that's two thousand so uh, a post sort of a post AIDS society you know they're, they're able to to uh, you know we have life saving medicines now it's not a death sentence but you you've got that toxic reality brewing of um, short attention spans and who's going to call me back and we can't get legally married so you know where's this going to go with a relationship yeah the last three films you covered to end the season were local hero from 1983 charade from 1963 and the incredible shrinking woman local hero was a, a pick for me because Again, it was just a movie that never left me once I saw it and lingered on. Uh, for me, it's one of my most favorite movies of all time. And it's it's another quiet uh, movie that's got a lot of, of heart uh, and a lot of odd characters and uh, a fun sense of humor and a real story. So... And it's, and it's got Burt Lancaster. So there. <laughs> <laughs> and us sci-fi nerds will recognize the the future Twelfth uh, Doctor Peter Capaldi in one of his earliest roles. Actually, his very first role, very first role ever. <laughs> and he's yeah. memorable, very memorable in it. He's quite the charmer with the 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 lady who loves the ocean. <laughs> and uh, um. Charade or Charade, um, depending how you want to pronounce it, from 63. That, that is one of my favorite films. Um, I, I've always been a bit of an Audrey Hepburn film, but I, I think I'm more of a fan of her 60s films. And, mm-hmm. and, and um, it's sort of to, to find a film with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in, you know, you could have wanted some more, really. Um, yeah. it's, it's weird because on the, you look on the back and it won this award, it won that award, it, but it's not that well known or it doesn't seem to be or it doesn't seem to be you know if you were going to name five Audrey Hepburn films or five Cary Grant films I'm not sure that the man on the street would would well the man on the street probably wouldn't know any these days but um, I, I, I feel like it's a bit under appreciated considering how popular it was at the time but, uh. yeah uh, again I first saw this movie on TV years ago and again, just uh, just a movie I never forgot, and it's famous for being uh, one of the best Hitchcock movies that he never directed because it feels so much like a Hitchcock movie. But he didn't have anything to do with it. Um, it was a guy, however, the, the guy who directed it came from an unusual background, dancing, really, dancing and choreography, who eventually went on to producing and directing. And the guy just... He's, he was, you know, making movies, latter part of his career. And he said, I just, I want to make a Hitchcock movie. I just want to make a Hitchcock movie. So he did. <laughs> and it ended up being a really fun uh, movie. And Toppy um, talked me into watching it because, of course, I, like yourself, enjoy anything Audrey Hepburn was in. But we had, in a previous season, discussed a film which was sort of a take on it, starring Doris Day, and uh, that was called Caprice. Now, 
Toppy, of course, said, let's watch the story that this is based on. And that's how we got charade. <laughs> well, maybe not based on, but they they were clearly trying to do charade with Caprice. Uh, only, it, well, well, it just, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's got its own charms, that Caprice movie. <laughs> but, but, um, uh, but, but very very different but they are interesting that that would be a great double feature to be honest with you uh the movies were competing with television and they were trying like hell to get people to come back get out of their seats get out of their house come back to the movies and so they were basically saying look at what we can do we can do these huge long epics on widescreen and it's gonna knock your socks off so all of these were widescreen epic movies um and i'd love to know and i don't i don't know uh, if charade was widescreen it it wasn't an epic like cleopatra Mm -hmm. anyways i i don't know if charade was released in any special way so but what where did charade come in there oh DJ? goodness toppy i i think that perhaps we're going to uh not ruin but maybe change our reputation because you know there are expectations here you mean charade did good oh my goodness charade actually come in number came in number 10 and it's surprising not because i thought it was a uh, an underdog film not with audrey hepburn in it certainly but this movie was released in december of 63 so for being one of the last films on the tally for the year it did quite well it was number 10 and it brought in 13.4 million of 60s money now, uh, to, to give you an idea of what it was up against more directly, the film that did one better than Shrade was a film called McClintock, which, of course, had uh, Mr. John Wayne. I'm forgetting um, John Wayne's nickname there, but... Uh, uh, Duke. Yes, the, uh, the Duke. The Duke. And, oh, uh, wait a minute. I, I was, I'm thinking of McLeod. McLeod! Yes. Not, not McClintock! It's, no, it's it, different. It's, it's a, those Scottish no. names. They always trip you up there. <laughs> and, of course, uh, along with Mr. John Wayne was more Maureen O'Hara, one of Dad's favorites. She she was pretty. Oh yes, it brought in fourteen point five million, and the film that did uh, one less better than uh, Charade. Uh, I, I'm a little surprised. I forgot that this was the cast. Now I I actually tried out for a part in this play in high school, and well, I wasn't a very good student. I was kind of on. Uh, academic probation, so I didn't get to be in the play. But, but it was Bye Bye Birdie, which starred Mr. Dick Van Dyke and smoldering uh, temptress Anne Margaret, and it brought in $13.4 million in 63. Yeah. I'm not totally sure, but I, I think Dick Van Dyke and Anne Margaret were doing it on Broadway, I think. Hmm. Along with uh, What's-His-Face from Bewitched, uh, the, the Uncle Arthur. Okay. What's his name? Oh, um, uh, Paul Lind? Uh, Paul Lind. Okay. Anyways, I think. I, think, I watch uh, his Halloween special every year. No. <laughs> oh, my God. 
And finally, the incredible shrinking woman. Now, now isn't there a, like a fifties version of this? But this is this is a much more well, much later, and a, a comedy. Um, or, or, or am I just imagining that there was an original? No, there was. Um, it was a legit fifties science fiction movie uh, that was better than most. 50s science fiction movies uh, was written by uh, Richard Matheson who just did tons of popular movies and television scripts uh, and books um, and The Incredible Shrinking Woman uh, borders on a, being a screwball comedy um, Charles Grodin uh, is the husband and Lily Tomlin is the incredible shrinking woman who just gets bombarded with household chemicals <laughs> and uh, and subsequently um, starts to shrink. And it's unusual. I, I remember more in the 90s the, there was that run of movies like the, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and I think there might have been a sequel to that. So it, it, it was quite sort of popular in the 80s and 90s to do those sorts of... Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, incredible Shrinking One, much more cerebral than uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, that, you know, that really had, you know, it was all about them being tiny in a huge world. And uh, sure, Lily Tomlin gets smaller and becomes tiny and she has to live in this huge world. Um, but it's not as much about that as... A commentary on corporate greed, pollutants, etc., and uh, that's really what it's what it's more concerned about. Well, guys, thank you very much for telling us about the films that you discussed in season four of Matinee and the Misha. And listeners, yes, go back and listen to them. Um, but at least you you now have a sort of uh, a bit a bit of a, um, a a bit more information perhaps on some of the films. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thanks for having us again, Paul. Oh, it was such a fun visit, Paul. And uh, as I said, um, you know, leave me a space because I eventually want to get to that side of the pond. Uh, I'm tired of hanging out with some of the people I do. And, uh, well, I'll just have to find the funds to make it possible. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, well, well, we'll see you both back on the show to discuss season five but i'm sure we'll see you both before then too so uh, thanks again and thanks listeners for listening and uh, we'll say goodbye for now and uh, yeah keep watching those movies okay bye for now uh, thank you all for coming by and uh, keeping us company while we do it live it's much more fun with you uh when you're here Okay, so if you would be so kind, sir, tell us if you could say goodnight in the ways of the old days of radio. Good night, Gracie. Looking back across your 
your fourth season. Um, what do you think? Are you pleased with the films that, that you've, you've uh, discussed? Yeah, well, I certainly am because, of course, uh, this provides me with an opportunity to, you know, revisit those moments in my, my youth, in my young adulthood, where, uh, you know, it was the first time I had discovered this adventure or this story or this actor or, or talent. And so revisiting something like that lets me, as an adult, pick up on little things in the storyline that maybe I didn't realize, like Incredible Shrinking Woman. You know, when I first saw it, I probably didn't realize that it was a story about corporate greed. I just thought it was about all the funny things that could happen with chemicals when they're combined together. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it it, it certainly is a fun adventure, our, our show, because... It provides Toppy and I both with an opportunity to pinpoint on periods of our, our growings up in our adulthoods that maybe the other one was doing something else during. So, you know, hey, look, there's Elvis. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that ends up being, you know, the best part for both of us, I think, is that we end up seeing things we normally wouldn't have chosen and we're you know therefore we're exposed to things uh, we haven't necessarily seen or even been aware of and i think this year's batch uh boy we really got a mix in there um of (laughs) very different movies that span a a great number of of years and um you know they gave us lots of talking points so i think it was a good a good year for us. And many of the films that we discuss are so hard to come by. They're not on streaming. And so uh, to visit Chateau Star Sage, what I like to call my humble abode here with a hubby, um, y- you would think that the Library of Congress would be borrowing films from us because we have such <laughs> a collection. But, uh, you know, if, if someone does decide to uh, give matinee minutia a listen perhaps for the first time it pays to stick around because we sometimes as you've mentioned have watch parties and uh, at times that's the only opportunity you have to watch a film is if one of us has gotten a copy and decides to share it and um did you tell them tell people how they can learn about the watch parties and when they happen because we've got uh you've you've set us up with a facebook page we sure have. Uh, if you go into Facebook and you just search Matinee Minutia, sometimes I tell you good luck in spelling it, but I'll spell it for you right now. M-A-T-I-N-E-E. Minutia is M-I-N-U-T-I-A-E. If you just search for Matinee Minutia, you'll find our group there. It's it's kind of our version of a, uh, a you know a Sunday picnic. You can come in and we could talk about anything under the sun and uh, maybe you've got a favorite actor or there's a movie that you really want to talk about. Just uh, post in there. And we, of course, also will tell you uh, when the next live show is, which when we are in production, we're we're on a little bit of a break just for the next few weeks. We come back mid-September. We normally are on the first and third Friday of the month at 9 p.m. Eastern time. But that right. group, we announced things as well as special events like our watch parties that we were just talking about. Yeah, and, and we we do this live 
and you can participate and listen live and participate in the chat room uh, and interact with us and we and we'd love to have more people come uh, and be there live with us <laughs> we're on YouTube It's been good, but yeah, definitely time to come home now. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. Oh dear, (laughs) what's going on now? Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Let's go. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net. Uh, and any um, any any little tips? Any little if you can give away about season five, or have you not planned that far yet, or is it top secret? <laughs> Well, we've had, uh, you know, our finger in a pie or two here and there. I think it's safe to say you'll probably see uh, more 80s and 90s from my side of the of the balcony. And uh, I, I'm thinking of some tributes to some important people, uh, both those that were involved in my own personal life, but also people who we might have lost in the past year before their time. Topy, anything that you're thinking or, or anything uh, like well, I, I, I've got a bunch, you know, of of movies, sort of a, a mental list of oh, we got to do that someday, oh, we got to do that someday, and um, you know, I, I, I tend to tend to think and break them out as we go along, um, and a lot of it has to do with well, we just did that movie, so it might be good now to do this one. So a lot of it depends on, uh, for me anyways, the choices sometimes depend on, well, what have we done and what would what would be a good movie to follow up or balance out or what's what's different than what we just did. So that's kind of how I make my choices. It's sort well, of like I've hijacked the plane and Toppy is my co-pilot. Every once in a while has to lean over, tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, we've gone to the trouble of hijacking this plane. We should eventually land in Cuba. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that was a whopper. Whee. Oh my God, is this show over with yet? Hee <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. This is just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Oh, kitty, kitty, dearie. Purple, kitty, kitty, kitty. <laughs> oh, I love Dee Hi guys, right, we're back. So, 
season four. Yeah. Gosh. Oh, before you start, Paul, I have a request. Please, for the rest of the show, say film instead of film. Okay. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk. We talk about the films, uh, film. <laughs> the films, yeah. So, the Irish, <laughs> um, well, it's 557. Uh, no, that ain't right. <laughs>